a worst case scenario, the rocket explodes and we don't have jobs. Like, you know, let's, uh, whatever. If you can go in with that attitude, if you're the type of person who can laugh in the lifeboats, uh, you know, that's actually a good trait for startups as well. Welcome to Speed, a show about leaders who move fast. I'm your host, Peregrine Badger, on the team at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. We back founders working on climate change, health, free speech, affordable housing, and other global issues. These problems demand urgency. Shipping faster means saving lives, preventing extinctions, and creating a future worth living. We interview leaders who move fast and ask them what they did and how they did it with the goal of bringing their strategies and tactics to bear on the world's biggest problems. This is Speed. Today, we're chatting with Will Brewey, co-founder and CEO of Varda, a company building factories in space. Brewey studied physics, worked at SpaceX for five years, and then after a stint in finance, started Varda two years ago. We'll hear what Varda is all about and the lessons Brewey learned from the early days at SpaceX. Plus, we'll hear how Brewey thinks about speed and building a culture where people can laugh in the lifeboats. Before we get started, what is Varda? Varda is the first in-space manufacturing and earth reentry logistics company. So what that means is our mission is to build an in-space economy, but for the benefit back here on earth. Use space to develop value for people back here on earth. And the way we plan on doing that is by manufacturing unique products that require zero gravity of space and then bringing those products back to Earth. What's one example of that? So there's a ton of examples because we have a unique way to manipulate chemical systems at the physics level. You know, gravity is one of the four fundamental forces of physics. So um, chemical systems in general behave differently in zero gravity of space or microgravity. Uh, So We're focusing on the pharmaceutical industry first because it's kind of a match made in heaven in the sense that we have a unique way to manipulate chemical systems and the most expensive chemicals on earth per unit kilogram are the active ingredients of drugs. So it's reasonable to take them to space to manufacture them and return them uh, with a unique performance metric. Awesome. And how did you come up with this idea? I wish I could say I came up with it, but uh, it's been around for decades. Ever since humans have been going to space, either with hardware or with actual humans, we've been thinking about what we can do uh, up there with the unique environment of microgravity. So all this, there's been a ton of research done on the International Space Station, all the way back to Skylab, to show what chemical systems and what products we can make in microgravity. But the barrier to entry that has been stopping us from doing so is just cost to get to space. But that's all changing now thanks to reusable rockets uh, invented at SpaceX and other launch providers coming online now. And so with that lower cost to get to space, all of that research that's already been done is ripe for commercialization. And so what we do is essentially our research and development department has already been done for us in the form of the International Space Station. So we look at what's been done on the International Space Station as as the research that has shown the viability of certain chemical properties. And then we take those and we commercialize them on our spacecraft and our reentry vehicle. Yeah, that's super cool. You mentioned before that there's this positive feedback flywheel. Do you, do you want to mention that briefly? Yeah. So this is really cool in, in terms of what this will look like for the number of products that we can make in space. So now that launch costs have dropped low enough to make some of the more expensive products that rationalize us going to space, the threshold will only continue to drop as far as how uh, the cost to getting to space and therefore the number of products that we can make economically. And the way that this positive feedback works is right now we have a few products that we can make 
And so we drive launch cadence by making those products. And that helps us draw out our cost of goods as well as the launch provider. And that lowers launch costs. We see it already. You know, We buy a bulk buy of four launches from SpaceX instead of one, and we get a little bit of a price discount. Now, if we're buying a lot, you get even more of a price discount. And that way we can produce... And as that price goes down, we can produce more products. But by producing more products, we then ask for larger bulk buys, which makes the price go down even further. So you get this positive feedback flywheel that pushes launch costs and, and Varda's cost of goods to the ground and the number of products we can make to the sky. So, so I get what Varda does in the abstract, but practically, what does that look like? It's actually much simpler than you might imagine. We basically just launch spacecraft with our specific pharmaceuticals in them and then return them to Earth after processing them in microgravity of space. So uh, it's really launch, manufacture, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, sell, refuel the spacecraft with additional raw materials, take back to space, manufacture pharmaceutical products, bring them back down, and around and around we go. So I, you know, I, I tell the team that we'll know we're successful when we're launching so many spacecraft with pharmaceuticals in them that we can go to the Utah desert where our landing site is and we can go camping and we can watch more than one shooting star per night of our capsules coming in with grandma's pharmaceuticals on board. Awesome. So beautiful. When you think about the longer term, you know, let, let's say you guys are really successful. What does that look like? What does that imply? It's actually really interesting because if if you know if slash when we're successful, uh, we will have a huge impact on both the pharmaceutical industry and then this weird reaction impact onto the aerospace industry. So uh, first and foremost, because we have this unique way to manipulate chemical systems by performing chemical reactions in microgravity, that means we uh, give pharmaceutical manufacturers one extra knob on their manufacturing process that they don't have today. And so that means that they can create unique outcomes and unique products uh, because they can now change gravity as well as, you know, today they can change temperature and pressure and uh, what solvent they're using and the concentration. Uh, We just offer one additional knob, which is you can now turn off gravity for your manufacturing process. So that has a huge impact because every chemical system uh, responds to gravity in, in some way. And so this fundamental tool that can be used for any pharmaceutical drug uh, is now one that we can offer the pharmaceutical industry. So a whole new paradigm of drug formulation is now possible. So that means tons of new drugs that can perform better uh, for helping thousands and millions of people. But what's also interesting is that going back to the positive feedback flywheel I was talking about earlier, by by doing that, uh, we're also driving a lot of launch cadence. Because if you think about it, every other satellite company on Earth makes money off of either telecom or Earth observation. Both of those industries treat their satellites like capital investments. So, But at Varda, we treat our spacecraft like operational expenses because we have to launch and re-enter the spacecraft in order to, in order to take products out of the spacecraft and give them to our customers. And maybe to, to just sort of put that more simply, it's like these other sort of satellite companies are putting their satellites up and they're sitting in orbit doing some work for a while, and then they basically throw them out afterwards, right? They, they just sort of like uh, deorbit, and they're they're done. Whereas you guys are sort of recycling over and over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that we're producing a consumable product means that we don't have like a traditional satellite constellation, you know. Um, so there's satellite constellations for viewing the Earth. There's satellite constellations for uh, communicating with the Earth, like Direct TV or Sirius satellite radio. But those are launched once and then they make money on a uh, reoccurring revenue basis. Whereas we launch all the time in order to actually create the product. And so this we have this weird and very cool 
repercussion onto the aerospace industry because we'll demand a lot of launch. And so that'll make reusable rockets really look like airplanes because they'll be launching so frequently. Mm, cool. And so it, it sounds like in the longer term, then we're going to have all of these reusable rockets enabling sort of much more frequent launches, right? Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the idea for sure. So, uh, you know, SpaceX is already launching more than once per week with their reusable rockets. And so we would sure like to see that, you know, once per day or once per hour. And uh, if we can get a whole nother industry like the pharma industry treating shipping to space as just shipping, you know, that's kind of the switch that needs to flip in, in folks' heads that shipping to space is now just shipping. And if you can get a whole nother industry to understand that paradigm and use that capability, uh, then we'll see uh, some significant cadence of launches. In order to achieve that vision, how does Varda move with speed? Speed is at the core of Varda uh, because our optimization function is cadence, how quickly we can launch and re-enter a spacecraft. Because you know, in aerospace, it's okay to perform uh, manufacturing operations in a, at a low, slow rate because that's how it has been done historically. But if you want to manufacture products from the aerospace industry, like manufacturing space to other industries like the pharmaceutical industry, we have to be like any other manufacturing operation on Earth. So that means that we have to have the trains leave on time, as the saying goes at, at Varda. I also look to kind of some role models, like, for example, Kelly Johnson uh, was, uh, he ran Skunk Works and, and uh, in less than 130 weeks, he delivered the first jet aircraft to the U.S. Air Force, and they did that without computers. So uh, we don't really have any excuses these days not to uh, develop space hardware quickly and effectively. And, and it also occurs that it's sort of fun as well, like moving fast and, and that sort of urgency feels like it, it, uh, something at least you, you love. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it gets me out of bed every day. Uh, it's, it's definitely the, the most fun job you could, I think you could have is developing space hardware and doing it quickly. What I like to say is, you know, the key to success in this industry is getting your stuff off the ground quickly. If you can get things into orbit, you have much greater chance of success. So we, uh, we kind of focus on that as our key performance indicator. What, what's one sort of operational tactic you use to operate so quickly and efficiently? So at the core for Varda in order to move quickly is this concept of the responsible engineer. Uh, this is something I learned at SpaceX uh, while I was there. And what it is, is basically that the buck stops with the engineer who is assigned to a certain deliverable. So there is a very clear one-to-one -one mapping between a deliverable and an engineer, the responsible engineer of that deliverable. And everything in Florida has a responsible engineer, every, all the way down to the coffee machine. So if there's, if there's no coffee beans in the machine, then we know, you know, oh, the, who's the RE of the coffee machine? Uh, you know, let them know that we're out of coffee beans. And this concept creates th this environment where there is no safety net, per se, for the, for the RE or the responsible engineer, so that the, the buck stops with them. Uh, they determine what process makes sense, what testing is necessary. And their signature on the dotted line is them saying that their deliverable will work or, or, or and if they don't sign, then not work. Uh, what testing is necessary and kind of giving that, you know, uh, another term would be extreme ownership to the engineer responsible for a deliverable. So there's actually a, uh, there's a book that we stole this concept from called Extreme Ownership. And it's uh, basically how Navy SEALs think about responsibility and their roles. Mm, extreme ownership. Man, let's check it out. Such a great overview on Farda and your speed there. We'd love to take a step back and hear your story about how you originally joined SpaceX, since it sounds like a lot of the learnings from those days helped inform your approach at Varda. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, the truth is I, I searched the word space at our career center at college uh, just because I knew that's what I wanted to do. And it was the first thing that popped up. So uh, I applied there. I actually had some internship experience at a company called Space Systems Loral. Before SpaceX, they were the closest thing to commercial space and a, and a, a fun commercial space company. So I, I got kind of cut my teeth as an intern uh, during a couple of summers over there. And then while I was there, um, I met uh, one of my mentors over at, at SpaceX. And then we rebumped into each other uh, a year later um, at a small sat conference where I was competing on the college satellite team. And, uh, you know, I was considering going back to Space Listen to Ralph for a full time job. And she said, Oh, no, we were, I was there. SpaceX is the place to be. And I was like, All right, uh, you know, uh, tell me all about it. And, uh, and it was just clear that the passion in her eyes was like, she had found the oasis of uh, smart, fun engineers doing cool, hard problems. Mm, that's amazing. And did you ask her that at the time? Or did you just sort of take, take the energy at what it was? Like, did you sort of say like, whoa, like what's going on there? Uh, I am embarrassed to admit how little due diligence I did. I, I knew I wanted to do commercial space. But here's some illustration of how bad my due diligence was as an undergrad. Uh, I saw the business card and said one rocket road, you know, so I, I picture this long winding road in this green field. And like at the end of it is this huge rocket factory, you know, and I show up and, uh, you know, it's not even a road. It's a parking lot uh, and that the town just renamed a road so that uh, they could have that address. Uh, and I'm like, oh, we're in the middle of, the, you know, Hawthorne over here. And then, you know, I walk in on my first day and I say, you know, oh, how many how many rockets have we lost so far? And they're like, uh, two. And I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> uh, why am I spending my summer here? Uh, you know, they threw the best party at the small sack conference. So, uh, you know, I was an undergrad. I was easily sold on the fun aspect. And uh, so I just got lucky and fell into it, I guess. Nice. That's awesome. And so you started out as a hardware engineer, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, uh, designing avionics. So I was a physics major. And, and the problem with physics majors is you have three courses of action. You can either uh, become a professor, you can go to Wall Street, or you can become an engineer. But the problem with becoming an engineer is, uh, you know, employers don't know where to put you because you have a very broad foundation, but no application. So I, I was lucky to mitigate that risk by taking a lot of electives in electrical engineering. And so I uh, was able to work at the, in the avionics department, starting small with circuit boards that I would own um, uh, for flight and then uh, uh, more complex schematics and circuits and uh, eventually uh, more systems and more complex systems. Let's see. So my, my very first one was the blinky lights. So uh, uh, Dragon Spacecraft has red, uh, green and a strobe light. Uh, um, and because if you want to do a night re-entry, re um, you know, you have to have that for FAA. And so uh, I designed the uh, the strobe light um, on Cargo Dragon it was my very first project. That's cool. Yeah, I remember getting the LED to blink is always the sort of like, you know, hello world moment of EE. So it's yes. so poetic that you were able to do that on Dragon. Um, exactly. I have, a, I have a funny story actually about that, which is being a too clever engineer for my own good, um, I thought, well, this is, this is, you could think of this as a telemetry channel because um, we're going to be seeing it on the camera uh, from the space station. Why not like have, a, have encoded some, some telemetry in, in, the, in the light? Uh, you know, at first I was thinking something more complex, like, oh, we could actually like put like, like a legitimate telemetry by blinking like super fast, you know, on the milliseconds and, and, and having actual telemetry there. Uh, then I thought, well, maybe we just blink it slowly. And that indicates what the temperature is. And then my boss said, how would you just make it blink? <laughs> 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 and so, uh, so I did, but, uh, what, what I did was 
uh, my, my when I was a kid, uh, my uh, my mom she would hold my hand uh, as we crossed the street, you know, and, and she would squeeze it three times for you know I love you. Um, you know, if she wake me up in the morning, knock on the door three times, it was her, you know her little code. And so, uh, you know, I was so excited about space and it was my first job. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make it blink at the same three cadence, uh, you know, say I love you to my mom from space. Right. Uh, so so I did that. Um, and that's, you know, I made it blink three times. No one really, que- you know, questioned, oh, why at this rate or anything like that? It blinked just like my boss said. Uh, and so uh, I remember, you know, uh, watching the first rendezvous of uh, that vehicle. And I was home for Easter vacation, actually, with, and my sister was there, too. And uh, we're watching it on YouTube or, or uh, sorry, on the webcast. And uh, my mom sees the blinky lights. And of course, I've told her that I was doing the doing the lights and she recognizes the cadence immediately. You know, it gets all teary eyed. I lean over to my sister. I'm like, oh, who's the favorite now, Francis? <laughs> <laughs> who's the favorite? And she's just like, oh man, this is game over. <laughs> <laughs> no way to one up that. Oh, love it, yeah, love yeah. it. I just said, I love you from oh. space. Like, uh, you, you got her a cool, you know, card though this year. <laughs> man, that's beautiful. That's really, really cool. Yeah. And so in, in those sort of first like four years of working as a hardware engineer, were you sort of an IC or were you, were you sort of managing a team at one point? Uh, no, just I, I was an IC um, pretty much my entire time there. Uh, there's different ICs play different roles um, and it's a matrix management um, or matrix organization. So I didn't have any direct reports per se, but um, like, for example, if I'm doing the, uh, you know, the, if I'm the responsible engineer for like another system I did was the, the video system. Then, you know, there's a mechanical engineer on the project, there's a manufacturing engineer, a test engineer. And so I kind of have to play program manager um, and work with all those folks and we kind of do it together. But as far as like the program goes, the buck stop, starts, or excuse me, stops with the responsible engineer. So, um, the, you know, no, no team or direct reports, but um, uh, more of the project technical lead. Cool. So someone recommended we chat on this podcast and... One thing they said about you as a leader at SpaceX is that you always brought this incredible energy to the team. I was just somebody who is sort of relentlessly positive. <laughs> I, I I believe that. I, I I don't know who said that, but uh, there is actually something funny along those lines where I, I just got married actually a couple months ago. And um, uh, there was a toast uh, by one of my close friends who was a, a test engineer. So you know, he was testing all the stuff I would build. And, and in the toast, he said something similar. And uh, he recalled one time when we were in the lab and he's like, Brewie, your hardware, it just doesn't work. And it's not passing the test. And I'm like, well, not with that attitude. It's not. <laughs> 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 so, uh, so yeah. Um, but no, you know, that can get you in trouble too. So uh, strength and weakness, I suppose. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I'm, I'm curious, when you were at SpaceX, I, I feel like there, there's sort of a, um, at least from the outside, sort of this, this aura of like seriousness and kind of intensity and incredibly hard work. But it sounds like you, you sort of coupled that with this, this sort of joyousness and, and humor in your day to day. How did you sort of bring that like really positive attitude every day when the, the sort of stakes are so high and the level of intensity is so high? That's a very interesting question. No one's asked me that before. So I guess first is that I was not unique in this strategy. I would say that the the current public perception of what it's like to work at SpaceX uh, with that intensity is very different from the reality, at least in the 2012 timeframe. Like everyone else had a very similar mindset to me. I think that's why I liked it so much. Um, but, uh, you know, Worst case scenario, the rocket explodes and we don't have jobs. Like, you know, it's uh, whatever. Uh, if you can go in with that attitude, if you're the type of person who can laugh in the lifeboats, uh, you know, that's actually a good trait for startups as well. So uh, maybe that's why so many startups get spun out of, out of SpaceX. But, um, and it's just, it's so much fun. Like at the end of the day, it makes doing engineering like 
Like, what's the next coolest thing you're going to work on? Like, the next iPhone? Like, what a what a snooze compared to a Ooh. flying building full of explosives. You Shots know? fired. Shots fired. Oh, love it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, you're doing the, the most fun you can have. I, there's one good quote from a mentor of mine who's actually an advisor now for Arda. Is like, you can't be effective at that job while being afraid to lose it. You know, at the end of the day, we're fortunate enough to be well-educated. We're not going to end up on the streets. So not, why not take a big swing at building some awesome rockets? That's cool. Yeah, it feels like you have a good intuitive sense of that where you've met so many people who have that attribute. You can probably kind of intuitively get it from someone. I guess if, if you had to teach a hiring manager how to screen for that or how to interview for that, what would you say? That is a good one. It's, uh, it is definitely on the intuition more than the, uh, the analytical brain portion. I think very subtle details like does the person's eyes light up when they don't know the answer or do they shut down? You know, it's these very minute details. Do they get excited about something they don't know or do they get defensive? Are they able to, from a philosophy perspective, you know, uh, there's a couple, there's a school of philosophy of thought that's like, you know, life is absurd because on the one hand, you can really, really care about the Super Bowl, but on the other hand, uh, you're just a speck in a cosmic piece of dust, you know? So, um, uh, if you can zoom in and zoom out uh, to as a throttle to your mental health uh, and and observe that happen in real time during interviews, then uh, you know you've got someone who can uh, laugh in the lifeboats and uh, look death in the face kind of thing with a smile. One project you mentioned was the camera system in SpaceX. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, one of my one of the projects I worked on at SpaceX was the video system for both Falcon and Dragon. And that was a cool project, uh, especially for an entry-level engineer, because it's one of the more visible pieces of engineering hardware. Like whenever we watch a, a launch, you're watching the video of the launch uh, from the from the rocket or from Dragon, and so uh, it's almost like you can't not look away from the hardware. So it was it was really fun to lead the design of that effort because of the visibility of it. Although you know that came with its downsides as well, because uh, the flight video system, very public system. Uh, so everyone has eyes on it. So that can also be a tough engineering challenge. And, and the other end aspects of the video system, and this is probably true for, for many spacecraft, is it's right on the edge of flight critical. It's either the most critical, not flight critical system, or it's the least critical flight critical system. And so right on the boundary there means nobody really needs the video system until you need it. And so you know, resourcing those types of projects can also be tricky. And sort of on that project was that basically just you kind of fully owning that? Was there, was there, was there I don't know, like a, like a software engineer? Or was there, you know, kind of an integration engineer to help you like figure out how to integrate it with the rest of the system? Yes and no. Um, there was not a software engineer, so I had to write my own code. It was very simple. It was simple code. You're just pushing packets around. But I did write it. And um, I remember I made the header packet my name for fun so that I knew like bits were coming down. See, there's another bad example. These you know, if, if any uh, uh, budding engineers are, are listening, let's just do the opposite of these things. <laughs> so we, I wrote my own software for it. It was very simple, though. So then there was a mechanical engineer. He was yeah, super sharp. Same with the manufacturing engineer. Yeah, yeah so roughly four. Roughly four folks. Cool. Yeah, integration, of course, as well. Yeah. And I guess one of the things SpaceX is known for is just moving absurdly fast, especially in, in hardware world. What was like one sort of small example of that on this project? Uh, oh, there's lots. Uh, one example would be, um, so what we like to do is you get to gamble a little bit as a responsible engineer um, at SpaceX or, or at Varda. And what you can do is, let's say you're pretty sure what you designed is going to work. Now, you could either A, run all the tests, 
or B, strap it to the rocket. And while the rocket is getting built, you run the tests and hope that you don't have to pull it off and, you know, cause the rocket to slip. So there's, there's times when I would, you know, test in parallel. And then, of course, you know, the good, you know, if you win the bet, uh, then uh, you've saved the time by performing things in parallel instead mm. of serial. How many components do you think are on a given rocket that are being kind of like currently tested in parallel uh, for like a, I don't know, Starship? I don't know the answer these days, but I can tell you at, uh, during my, the, when I was there, and this is true at Varda as well, everyone. <laughs> yeah, everyone. So, yeah. so literally well, so like yeah. tens of, tens of different engineers with sort of like these various components throughout the rocket were kind of integration testing, uh, not, I mean, not quite live, not during a launch. So what you can do is there's a formal set of tests you have to uh, satisfy by multiple standards. One of them is called MILSPEC uh, 1540. That'd be for like avionics components. Um, there's SMC 016, which is for the vehicle itself, the rocket itself. And there's other requirements um, for the range. So at the end of the day, you just need to know that it works. But you also have to go through the motions of crossing your T's, dotting your I's in case there's something you missed. So what we do as, as engineers is we perform the testing that we think is required to convince ourselves that this is going to fundamentally work. Now, we don't have to convince anyone else, just convince yourself. So if, you are a, if you're a sharp engineer, um, you can be sharp about what tests you run and minimize that to get convinced, and then you can proceed. Then as the rocket's getting built or if part of the, the spacecraft is getting built, you know, you've already performed a small set of testing. We, I call it confident testing, get, getting confident in, in your heart design. And then you go and you do the official rigorous by the book, by the military standard testing. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're informed. And if you, if you thought about it correctly from the analysis, you did the analysis and the design and the confidence testing correctly, then you put yourself in a good position to save a lot of time because now you don't have to do things in serial. Mm, got it. And, and so it's like you have this component you design you do this initial test, which you might be able to minimize the number of tests you do by being clever. Then you install it on the rocket. And while it's on the rocket, you sort of have the official by the book, you know, set of, of tests that you execute. Correct. Correct. So you can do this in life as well as like, uh, what can I validate while I'm building something? Yeah, it's a great way to, to move fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. And so it, it seems like when you have all these components on this rocket that are all sort of getting integration tested while the rocket is getting assembled, there's just a huge amount of trust required because like, you know, somebody else's component could, I don't know if these components would explode at that point, but you know, it could, could fail in some way. I guess like, where do you think that trust comes from? That is a great question. Uh, in my, I think there's a lot of different answers to that. The way I would answer it is you don't have a choice. Mm. If you want to be successful, you have to trust at the end of the day, an engineer or whoever is responsible for the thing that you're trusting them for. The more process you put in to mitigate for any perceived lack of trust is fat. Now, as the company grows and you have more connections that have to talk to each other, that process, the equilibrium of how much process you want to verify the trust and lo- you know anything that gets lost in communication, et cetera, is more required. But if you want to be successful as a startup and you're trying to do something that isn't a slam dunk um, and you do have competitors, then there's just too much potential value to not trust the engineers. At the end of the day, if you can't trust the small team that you have during a startup, then you're already doomed. What are some examples of that process? Like it sounds like there's there's sort of some process which is critical, right? Like you 
you probably want to have like some sort of sprint or like, you know, a set of goals you outline, but then some process is superfluous. Like, what are some examples of this? Like, so let's see. So this is the, we have a bunch of, of different philosophies at, at Varda that I always like uh, echo. Um, one of them is it's okay to break once. And what I mean by that is don't implement a process until we've broken that requires the process. Now, definitely be smart and know like, hey, if and when we break from a scaling perspective, this is the process we'll put in place, but do not put it in until we break once. Basically, what I'm saying is that the, the fat of the process is more expensive than the loss associated with breaking once. Right. Um, so an right, example right. of that, yeah, yeah. An example of that fat would be, um, let's say signatures on the review. Uh, let's say I designed something and, you know, at Varda, you only need two signatures to put something in space. You need the design engineer and uh, another signature, let's say the review buddy, or maybe it's a, an integration engineer or whomever. That's enough. Now, if you get, you know, to a larger company size where the, like at Varda, the design engineers are, we don't even call them design engineers. Engineers, engineers are turning wrenches as much as they're designing. Um, and that's so that we can build a team that has an end-to-end view of the cradle to grave, you know, cradle to grave, I guess would be another term. Um, so, uh, um, but let's say you're at a large company now and it just doesn't make sense to have a sing- have that, and you, and you think of the engineering design cycle a little bit more as an assembly line then it's probably smart to have a manufacturing engineer or a flight operator or someone else, you know, add the number of signatures. Now that means there's more reviews. That means that the person who is ultimately responsible for delivering that hardware or software has to go through, explain things to more people. So that's fat, but you're getting value out of it at that place. So um, one lesson I definitely like about startups is that just remember that the company is as a changing living organism and what is right for today may not be right for tomorrow and you don't have to pick what's right for tomorrow um, and just know how your policies and systems and processes will scale, not that they need to scale per right, se. Right, right, right. It sounds like the the signatures on the review could could sort of be a analogy for other types of review, right? This is a couple of people doing code review. It could be like exactly, you know, yeah. the number of design reviews before something passes to the next stage. I'm curious what other types of fat exist besides this sort of like review one. It'd be like in hiring, like the the number of people that interview someone or. Mm, so that one, that's interesting. So I would, I'm very much okay with more people interviewing than less because the fundamental source of value at any tech company is the, is the brain power of the people working on that new tech. Best to get that one right. And it's worth all the engineering hours that go into that. But as far as just um, what other fat besides review, uh, another one would just be like, let's say rules, um, whereas like, you know, in, in large aerospace companies, you can't do what I just explained where you parallel path testing and um, integration at the same time. So that, that would be called, you know, that could be a bureaucratic process or maybe like decisions are made by an engineering change review board, right? Hmm. Um, anytime you hear the word committee or board or group, if the decision is being is requiring more than one human, there better be a real high value or a big risk you're trying to mitigate by doing that. SpaceX is known for setting very ambitious goals uh, and pushing very, very hard to you know, meet them. How is that evidence in sort of OKRs? When you think about the cadence that you set and reviewed goals at SpaceX, how does it differ from other companies you've heard of? The closest thing we have at Varda to what you described is we have company milestones. Um, and the rule I have for defining company milestone, and we should always have at least three on, on the books, 
could be, you know, between one to three to four, maybe months out. It should be a test because in order to hit a milestone, it can't be something like, oh, like I finished a design. No, 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 no. Like you got to win against physics in order to get the milestone. What are, what are some example, example like milestones at Varda that sort of fit into that? Let's see. We have a uh, um, mating our capsule and our spacecraft is a milestone that's coming up right now. So uh, we purchased a spacecraft bus um, from Rocket Lab, and then we have our reentry vehicle, and they need to mate and perform. Uh, and by that, by that, I mean plug plug in. Cool. Um, and then we have to have the computers from each craft talk to each other, um, and then you know twiddle the things. So things like uh, turn on the heaters, um, read the th- temperature sensors, uh, stuff like that. So um, that's a milestone. And what's and the other thing about company milestones is you want them to be broad so that um, everyone gets to be involved. So like in order to interface two spacecrafts, you need hardware engineers involved, you need software engineers involved, you need avionics engineers involved, you need the operators involved. And it's something that can also build a lot of team morale because I mean, like at the end of the day, we're not building spacecraft because it's not fun. So uh, uh, you might as well uh, put the put the that sort of stuff on the Gantt chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you have these company milestones. Uh, you're saying there's like three on the books. I guess in in the SpaceX example, it sounds like for an individual project, you know, you go through this like how many people you need, what are the requirements, what does success look like, you design it, and then you get to these milestones. And then how do you decide uh, sort of how often to like touch base on them? Because you know some people are reviewing th- this type of thing like, daily, weekly, and it, it obviously can impact the iterations dramatically. Yeah. It also is a little bit more bespoke. Uh, and the reason for that is because the milestones are driven by the, the, the things that you're going to interface with. At the end of the day, uh, we're going to launch the spacecraft in May. Okay. In order to do that, like, we can work backwards and forwards of all the things that need to happen. Then we can start laying lines in the sand um, as those company, like those big milestones, like, oh, we need to test. Oh, you know, we have to put it into a TVAC test, a thermal vacuum test. That's a big, comp- that's a big milestone, big test. Um, lot, everyone involved in some way. To answer your question, it's the person that is adjacent to you in the system design or in the flow. So there is no, you know, of course, everyone has a manager to make sure everyone's happy and healthy and that like in general, you're committing to dates and stuff like that. But like, it's not the manager who's coming over and being like, hey, you know, XYZ is due on Monday. It's the person who's going to use XYZ, mm. you know, that is going to be like, hey, you, you, you ready? Because I, I got to put this thing in the thermal vacuum chamber. That means I need the crane done. Is the crane done yet? You know, it's not the manager of the person responsible for the crane that's bugging them about the crane. It's the person who needs the crane. <laughs> so, so in your example from the LEDs, it's like the test engineer who would test your LEDs is saying, hey, like I got to get this to, you know, fit it into my schedule. When's it going to be done? And you have that conversation. Right, exactly, exactly. Yep, that's a perfect example. Yeah, or the integration engineer, hey, we got to plug it in on this day uh, in, like, and bolt it to the, to the spacecraft. Right, right, right. And so you, you sort of guess, write down uh, all the steps you talked about, right? Like the people are going to work on this, the requirements, you know, what success looks like, and those milestones driven by your, your peers who are going to be using your tech. And then does that bubble up at all? Like, do you sort of, you know, send that to anybody for review who's sort of like up the chain? Or is, is there like a sort of design engineer who's not necessarily like up the chain, but they're just, you know, kind of an independent expert? Yeah. So let's see. So for example, at Varda, I'll define what the company milestones are per quarter. I do them uh, like, hey, in this quarter, these are the things we want to accomplish. So this so like it mating, does go back to that. Like exactly what you were saying earlier. That's like the quarterly. Right. Cool. Right, right. Exactly. So I do do I do that so that every all the lead, leadership knows um, that, oh, you know, mission is in Q2 of 2023. TVAC is in, or it's thermal vacuum, sorry, with the abbreviations. Thermal vacuum uh, occurs in January. And then the people who are responsible for that test need to figure out how way to get it ready and executed in that time frame. Uh, and then they 
as a means to being successful have to plan. And then as a function of that planning, they can bubble back up like, hey, we're not gonna be able to hit that deadline because of whatever reason. And what's that, what's that time loop? Like, you know, they sort of begin this planning. Is that like in this example of the, the mating, the capsule and the spacecraft or the TVAC test? Is that sort of like, I don't know, like a couple days or like a couple weeks? Like, uh, yeah, I'd say like, I mean, it depends, uh, but it is, I would say like on average, uh, a week. Um, and it's, it's for like, you know, for example, the, sticking with the capsule and the spacecraft mating, like, okay, the things that, what, what has to, has to occur there, that, that one's a pretty significant one because you've got a lot of different moving parts. And so that one might take a couple weeks to figure out all the steps, who's responsible for each step, how long each step is going to take and that sort of thing and make sure that we can hit the, the rate that we're trying to, uh, of development that we try to hit. Um, but then there's simpler things where it's like, Hey, um, we want to build this one-off test unit to reduce the risk cold welding uh, on on this particular uh, separation device. We can knock that out in a day. That type of planning. We've talked a lot about your SpaceX experience and the lessons and process and goals you learned there, and how this influenced your current work. We'd love to circle back to your story after SpaceX and the founding of Varda. How did that go? The founding story of Varda is uh, is, is great. I love telling this one. Uh, so. I was doing my own thing in New York, working at a Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and also thinking about uh, if I would want to do a startup. I've always kind of wanted to do a startup for uh, a variety of reasons, mostly for the autonomy, uh, you know, high risk, high reward. It just, it's a personality fit. Um, and so uh, uh, I, w- I was thinking a bunch of, of doing a bunch of ideas, uh, some of them good, some of them not so good. Uh, you know, we could do a whole episode on all my bad ideas and probably half an episode on my good ideas. Uh, but um, in that process, uh, I got called up by Delian, who's a principal at Founders Fund. And he was looking to do an incubation for space manufacturing. And with the thesis that um, with lower launch costs, thanks to reusable rockets, there is now products that we can make economically in space. Um, and he had gone around to some of our competitors, uh, or Varda's now competitors, and tried to invest in them to, uh, because he saw this as a, an emerging space, no pun intended. So, but he didn't really like what he seed or what he saw, excuse me, um, during the due diligence. Uh, and, and they didn't have the kind of the mindsets that he, he was looking for. And so he was asking around, he had some mutual friends, or he had some friends at SpaceX who were mutual friends uh, for me as well who uh, basically referred him to me as someone who has both experience um, in the business domain as well as in the engineering domain. Uh, he, he, he was like, hey, I got this idea. Um, originally, I said no, uh, because I thought, man, I'm actually, quite frankly, not smart enough to design a dragon. Uh, that was kind of the idea that he had in mind. And I was like, well, you know, again, from first principles, we don't actually need a reentry vehicle of that complexity. Um, we need, uh, you know, and I was inspired by uh, the Corona film bucket, which is the, the first reentry um, vehicle that ever uh, came back from space to earth. And it was a very, very uh, simple design. It brought back film canisters because it was a, a spy satellite that, that would fly over the Soviet Union and during the Cold War. And since there's no video downlink in the, in the 50s and 60s, um, it would sh- it would take pictures on the physical Kodak so film. You and then, knew this story yeah. when, when you were sort of thinking through this. Uh, no, actually, I, I, uh, I knew that there was a spy satellite that was, that get caught after reentry. Okay. Okay. But not like the whole story. And so you went back and you Googled it. Right. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you know, technically you don't need a vehicle. Maybe you could do like a ballistic reentry and you, you know, then you don't need as much control. You don't need a software, you know, you might be able to get away with like a solid motor rocket. Like this is something I could design. 
Um, and then I was like, oh, this has been done before. Yeah, I was like, oh, yeah, right. The Corona film bucket. Right, right, right. I remember like seeing that at the National Air and Space Museum when I was a kid. Um, and so I was like, okay, this is uh, not daunting. This is kind of the sweet spot of engineering um, that I think uh, we, could, we could definitely do. Um, and so, uh, I was like, all right, yeah, let's do this. Um, that was, that was all of like two days basically. Um, then flew out to California, met, um, Delian. Let's see after that we spent, so that was in August. That was at the end of August. That was August 20th, I think 2020. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you met Delian, you flew out, you had this business plan. Do you want to share a little bit about how you met Seth and Ella? Yeah. So, uh, I remember it vividly. Uh, we had just gotten a verbal offer for a term sheet from Founders Fund, but we hadn't got one from Lux yet. Um, and we were waiting for it. And so we walked in um, a little bit nervous because we had we pitched us two folks. We knew we had one. We didn't know if we had the second and we were on our third. Uh, so we walked in. They are super hospitable. Um, I felt like I was walking into my own home. I almost like, they're like, hey, take your shoes off. And also we got you these cool socks, right? So uh, I still wear the socks. Um, it's awesome. They also have this really cool for lack of a better word, trophy shelf of a product from every one of the startups they've invested in. So then we went up onto their roof and um, it was a nice brisk fall, almost winter day. Uh, and uh, in San Francisco, they have this really nice house, looks over the over the, the hill in the bay. And we just talked shop. We just kind of got to know each other, like, yeah, talked shop about how we thought about technology in general and how we would think about starting the company and um, like w- what was our plans. And like, it was a very, it was the most casual of pitch meetings. It, it, I, I, I forgot I was even at a pitch meeting. I was like, uh, you know, I was just like, oh, we're just gonna go meet, uh, meet these people. And then like, you know, um, uh, so it was, it was cool. Um, they asked some really great questions. Uh, they definitely probed on things that in retrospect was great probing, um, like definitely on the EQ and the team dynamics and like how, you know, how do you guys communicate with one another? Like, how do you deal with conflict resolution? And it was like, we kind of all felt like, <laughs> we're like, uh, we were, you know, this is the closest thing to relationship therapy uh, that, uh, uh, that a pitch meeting could be, but it was actually super healthy. And like, um, it's like something that I think probably firms might want to do more, especially like with a virtual pitch meeting. Anyway, they, they're one of these, these teammates that, um, you know, are, are there for you super supportive, but also stay out of the way when you're not needing the support. So it's like, you know, the, the ideal uh, venture partner. The deal closed in December. Um, we hit the ground running in January and uh, in the office. And uh, yeah, been uh, full steam ahead ever since. Oh, love that. Fast forwarding, one recent milestone you shared was a drop test where you tested the Varda capsule being dropped with a parachute and landing on the desert floor. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is uh, this was a big test milestone for us, uh, the drop test, and uh, it's actually kind of cool because uh, I, I just invited in our uh, technical lead for the vehicle, uh, Nick Ciadella. So um, he uh, he can tell you all about it as far as uh, the, the nuts and bolts of this story. Uh, I'll just kind of give the overview real quick, which was that uh, this is a key test that occurs, um, one of the biggest system level tests that happens um, on the ground, or, you know, I guess not on the ground, but uh, uh, before going to space and What's neat about it is uh, that we get to exercise much of the, many of the reentry and uh, descent and landing systems of, of the spacecraft. Um, and it was a, it was a, a bit of an adventure as, as any you know large vehicle test campaign is. So um, I'm excited for, uh, for to get to relive it by listening to tell it right now. Cool. Hey, good to meet you, Nick. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Speed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like the drop test was a key milestone on the way to actually deploying this in space. Do you want to talk a little bit about the process at a high level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, at a high level, like 
you know, you go into these tests to try to tease out as much of the system as you can um, before going to space. Uh, you know, there's we're doing this to try to demonstrate what that capability looks like. So we go into this and we uh, we set up this this test to test out these parachute subsystems and make sure they're going to work the first time. And so, you know, at high level, it's effectively, you know, you, you get your parachute system, you pack it like you're going to put in flight, you track all your tests like you fly exceptions, you know, make sure that you're testing as the way it's going to fly. And then you drop it out of the plane. And it's actually quite that simple. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and then hope it touches the ground uh, under a parachute and not, uh, not as a crater. Cool. And so w- what's the, I mean, it sounds like a pretty significant test in that a bunch of people worked on it. And there, there's obviously some unspoken engineering challenges. I guess, you know, in the movies, the parachute kind of pops out and then, you know, the, the thing just sort of gently glides to the ground. I'm guessing it doesn't always work that way. What, what, <laughs> what's sort of like a, a hard engineering challenge you guys overcame really fast? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, honestly, I think the biggest one was that uh, that was our first try, that video. Uh, and so, you know, there's, a, like a, you said, a massive team, you know, behind that project, countless sleepless nights uh, type of thing, you know. And so going into that test, um, it's really about uh, all of it culminating into the execution of that test end to end. So, you know, there's a lot of pieces at play. Um, you know, the, the, the scale of our test was the full flight vehicle as well, which is maybe not something that's typically done, but, but has been done in the past. Um, so it was everything from the flight structure to the flight avionics, uh, certainly the flight parachute system. But really all of that comes into like, yeah, that was our 200 pound capsule that, you know, we dropped out of a plane. We're testing out the subs- uh, subsonic aerodynamics. Uh, we're testing out the avionics and controls. And so it's really, it's really about the culmination. And so there's, you know, many, many days that go into it beforehand, testing it out, uh, faking the vehicle out to make it think like it's falling from a plane and really kind of working through those, that cycle for the first time, um, you know, as a young company. And do you have a sense if a traditional aerospace company was doing this sort of development, you know, they, they were building what Varda's building today, um, if they would have done this test at all, like sometimes startups just do faster iteration cycles and, and do different tests than a big company would have. So generally, yes. Um, or, you know, larger aerospace companies, I, you know, do 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 handfuls of drop tests. Um, really, all about uh, burning down risk before your first space flight. But you know, the the pace by which you do it, the way we we go about it, um, certainly is different. Um, you know, our risk profile is quite a bit different than any you know maybe some of the larger aerospace companies. But, but the biggest, most common thing probably is that we actually used a flight vehicle. So that was our, our flight vehicle that we built for the first time. We used it you know, to test out our build processes for that, that first flight vehicle. And so that part was probably a little bit unconventional. Mm. But that allowed us to really test out you know, more things than just the parachute. You know, others, other uh, companies might test the system as uh, you know, just kind of like a weight with a parachute on the end of it. Um, and so that, that part was actually... Um, I think showed to to the paces of what the team we have here is and how we can iterate very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How long do you think, I guess it sounds like it would be a little bit of a different test if a traditional aerospace company was doing it, but like when you imagine that process and, and them executing on it, do you have a rough sense of like how long it might take a sort of, you know, team at one of those big aerospace companies? That's a tough question to answer, but you know, I've, I've seen a couple, um, a couple of companies kind of go about it over a couple year, year time frame. Um, I mean, we went from, you know, writing that contract uh, towards the end of the year last year, um, maybe a little bit earlier than that, and into the drop test in, inside of like six to eight months. Mm. Uh, but that was also go- coming from having, you know, no vehicle design whatsoever. So that was uh, <laughs> maybe like we were probably starting at, you know, an earlier, earlier phase uh, as well. So that's it's a hard comparison to make. Um, but 
like I said, the scale of our, our test was, was maybe slightly unconventional to, to make a real apples to apples comparison. Right, 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 right. I mean, it, it sounds like the, perhaps it's not apples to apples, but it does sound like you sort of accomplished, generally speaking, more than a comparable you know, test at another company because you're parallel pathing on the flight structure and you know, the, the other parts of the vehicle, right? Yeah. So that was, you know, that's the biggest strength of this team is that the the pace of iteration and our ability to like sort of work in parallel together and then have that come to a head at that end. And that's kind of why I said that that was, you know, the real challenge, so to speak, and going into that is, you know, how it all culminates together. That was, you know, that's really the strength of the team into getting into, you know, parallel pathing all these things simultaneously and then being able to do what is, like you said, you know, an apples to apples test at the end of the day and, and accomplish even more. Um, and so that's the part that, you know, very, very awesome. Yeah. When, when you do that kind of uh, parallel pathing, obviously you speed some things up, but there is some risk that, you know, the parachute doesn't deploy correctly or something goes wrong and then you destroy uh, a lot of work and, and you know, the, the sort of parallel path, both paths fail. Um, did, did you ever like formally estimate that risk as a number and like have it in a spreadsheet or, or on a doc or something? Or was it just more a rough sense of like, okay, this is like a pretty small risk, so we're not going to stress about it? So we did not uh, have like a formal estimation of what that uh, risk profile was going into it. But, um, you know, and, and that, that's maybe somewhere where we're not, uh, you know, identical to uh, maybe like one of the larger aerospace companies. But, you know, we do go into those t- tests looking at every piece of the system and what sort of risk that might add to the test. That said, um, you know, kind of a, a different change of mindset in that we, the way we approach these tests is that we do them to learn. Um, and, you know, part of learning is failure sometimes. And so, you know, I think having that little bit different mindset going into the test is what also allows us to, you know, iterate quickly, succeed, um, and or rather learn and then succeed uh, at the end of the day. Mm, got it, got it. So it does sound like there was a, of course, some analysis of looking at all these different components and the probability that each one of them might fail. Sorry, at a high level, it was like a couple of the tests you did leading up to the the drop test. Is that right? At a high level, it was the way that we manage the risks um, in terms of having them all run run in parallel. And so this is sort of that, that that drop test was really the first time that the entire company end to end from supply chain to IT to the engineering, of course, was faced with a must work scenario. Um, mm-hmm. There was no other vehicle to go drop if that thing hit the ground without a parachute. Mm, got it. And and so how did you manage that risk? I mean, it, it sounds like a slightly scary, very scary. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the, the when you drop it out of the plane, there's about 30 seconds of uh, a terror before the parachute deploys. So you kind of just watch that happen and uh, hope for the best. But um, but you, there's a lot of work goes behind it beforehand, of course. But, you know, as we manage the risk, there's it's kind of an interesting, like, coupled problems constraint, too, where, you know, we don't necessarily quantitatively look at each component's probability of failure, but we do look at all of, sort of the constraint, constraints as we go into the test. So something like, uh, we couldn't fly too high because uh, at some point the you know the pilots need to to wear oxygen masks, or we couldn't fly too low because we didn't know exactly what the coefficient of drag would be like if the capsule started tumbling and we didn't want it to hit the ground before the parachute had an opportunity to deploying. So you know how we kind of bound those two boxes um, is sort of how we manage our risks, but then you know in in terms of trying to make sure that uh, we can you know fail fast, fail quickly, and and learn from them. Awesome, Nick. Thanks so much for coming on, and and really appreciate you talking through this project. It sounds incredibly fast paced and. Really cool. Yeah, it's good to meet you. Good to meet you. Yeah, a couple last questions. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about this before, but when you think about hiring for speed, what do you interview for? How do you ask questions about that? Uh, I stole this one from my former manager and uh, you know, mentor, one of my mentors over at 
at, at SpaceX, but uh, he would ask the question, okay, how would you do that if you only had half the time? And how would you do that if you only had a quarter of the time? And they kept asking it. And you also, you get, it's a great question, series of questions, because it shows how and when an engineer is willing to cut scope. It shows risk tolerance. It shows uh, what they do when they get flustered, because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to do it in a day. Uh, so what happens when you don't have a solution? So um, I love that line of questioning. Mm. And so the, the sort of, I'm guessing the perfect answer is like, they sort of ask good questions about cutting scope and they sort of like are creatively imagining ways in which it could go faster. And then they're, when they bottom out, they communicate that or? Uh, yeah, exactly. So um, everything you said, um, and there's tons of other soft signs, both on the good and the bad side. So, uh, you know, it could be like, are they able to push back against requirements um, is, is a big one. Like, hey, you know, I know you said you wanted it to go 50 miles an hour, but I could do it in half the time if it only had to go 45, you know, so um, the ability to push back on requirements to understand why that val- requirement is valid in the first place. Um, another one is like, get creative. Um, where do you take on risk? Uh, also, are you are you enjoying this line of questioning? <laughs> are you enjoying this line of questioning? Oh man! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, no, I mean, I mean, like if if the person is enjoying this, right? If it's an intellectual thought experiment uh, that they're having fun with, that's a great sign. If it's like if they're like stressed and that sort of thing, it's like oh, you know, that sort of thing. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's like you said earlier. If their eyes light up when you ask the question, then that's a really good sign. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's cool. What's one habit you have around moving fast? Oh, yeah. Um, Let's see. So always questioning like, wait, why am I doing this? (laughs) Uh, So I'll ask myself like when I, so weekly, uh, here's a good tangible habit. Weekly, I go through my calendar before the start of the week. And I ask that question for every single thing that's on the calendar is like, um, can I cut this? You know, at the, you know, everyone knows this, um, it's over, always over said, but it's true is, you know, the only thing you can't buy more of is time. So just using it is as a resource as the most scarce and precious, precious resource. Yeah. And, and some people instill the sort of value of time as a resource in their team by like communicating their burn rate or, you know, sort of having, I don't know, large Gantt charts that are obviously placed around the office. Like any, <laughs> any other ways you sort of communicate the value of time to your team? Uh, let's see. Uh, so, oh, um, I would say the feedback mechanism for engineers. So engineers obviously always want to work on the next cool thing. Um, and if you finish the work end to end, um, not just, you know, you can't just throw it over the fence. Uh, you, you know, you got to get it into the atmosphere uh, or out of hopefully. Then uh, the, the sooner you finish your work, you get to work on the next cool thing. So creating a reward system of gaining responsibility or, or working on the cool next thing as a function of, of finishing. So yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because it's a different corporate culture. Like, you know, there's, there's large corporate culture where like the goal is to, oh, I'm going to build a large team. And it's like, the goal here is to obsolete your own job. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah. if you do that, then you get to work on something even cooler, you know? Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. climb the layer, layers of abstraction until we're sipping lemonade in, in space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Have you ever shadowed a coworker and helped them speed something up? Oh, yeah, all the time. So um, my own personal reward system is if I get all the work I have planned done for a day, the day I float around and I see who's working on what, I temperature check the office, um, who's stressed out, uh, who has a problem there that, ne- that needs to solve in, um, where is the most, uh, where's the most critical thing happening for that given day. And, you know, sometimes it's worth me being there and sometimes it's actively worth me not being there. <laughs> um, but there are plenty of times when, you know, some of my favorite times are when like, uh, someone maybe, is physically sorry, maybe, building. Maybe, yeah. maybe briefly, what's like the rough yeah. time split? Is it sort of like, you know, 95% of the time you have your own task that this is like 5% or do you consciously bump it up to like 20 or something? I try to reserve one Friday afternoon, so like 10% of the week. 
And it usually gets bumped down to five because I'm over-optimistic on how much I can get done. But um, I, I do have a calendar block off on Friday afternoons to do skip levels, to float around, to you know step back for a second from actually doing things and go into like a more open mind. Cool, cool, cool. And then you were mentioning examples of that. So you're you know, sort of floating around the office. Sometimes it's better to be there. Sometimes to not be there. But right, it depends on the problem that's being worked and all the you know all the dynamics that's going on. But um, so uh, you know, for example, um, you know, but my favorite ones are when there is. There is a, a menial task that's related to um, to the hardware. I would hang around the software folks more often, but I just don't. I don't speak the language, and you can't really like hover and lend a hand to typing. Uh, <laughs> um, even though I, I will go over and uh, uh, oh, actually going back to the drop test. Here's a good example of floating around. Um, is that uh, when we we're going to that drop test, um, we wanted to have all the data recording um, so that we could feel what the touchdown vibrations looked like. We wanted to measure pressure as a uh, function of descent, uh, uh, temperature, stuff like that. Um, roll rates. Um, we wanted to write it all to, um, to memory or to an, uh, to an SD card. Like, like, uh, and so, um, but there was at one of the meetings about a month before that drop test, there was kind of murmurings of, oh, we might not be able to get that delivered on time and we might need to cut scope uh, and we won't have that feature for the flight. And I was like, oh, that's a, that's a pretty important feature to have for a high-risk test like this. But at the same time, you know, uh, I got to stand by my word of, you know, always protect the date and cut scope until you hit the date. Mm. Uh, like that's, that's a guiding philosophy at Vardis. So, um, so I went over to the responsible engineer, uh, software engineer for writing the SD card. There's, there was two engineers working on this. They were responsible for different portions of the stacks. They were working the problem. Pro- problem. And uh, I went over to them and I, uh, you know, I pat him on the back and I said, you know, no pressure, but at your age, Newton discovered gravity. I have full faith in you that you are going to deliver this on time. And he just looked up to me and was like, thanks, Bruy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I'll tell you what, um, the young blood energy of fresh out of school folks, um, they might not know um, all the... Um, the ins and outs of every space specification or and, and know how to do things per se, but they know physics and they know the fundamentals of engineering. And I'll tell you what, he came through, he crushed it. Uh, and both of them did. Uh, they, they, they pulled it over the line. Um, they did a great job. Uh, I remember at the all hands. So we have a weekly all hands on Monday morning and the, the Monday morning uh, after uh, the drop test, we had a, I had a slide on there uh, with both of them. One of them is Newton because I made that comment. And the other one is Leibniz uh, since they both discovered calculus at the same time. And uh, I was like, hey, they, pull, you know, they pulled it off. So uh, I was really proud of them. Nice. That's awesome. Last question. What's one thing someone else told you about speed that you share with other founders? It's like when you talk to sort of super early stage founders and they're like, you know, we're dealing with X problem or like we're in X situation and then something you think of. Yeah, that is a good question. So I am a sucker for a puzzle to solve. And so usually the way I approach that is I ask all the clarifying questions that would inform a educated response to how I would cut or how I would go fast or cut time. But I, I guess I could say I have like usual go tos. Uh, my usual go to one would be like, "What's the worst case? You know, what's the worst case situation uh, thing that would happen if it didn't work?" You know, or um, uh, you know, another one would be, uh, "Can you pay twice as much to get them to deliver that thing in half the time? Um, what can you throw cash at the problem? Because that's a, that's a you know cash for value trades uh, problems that can be solved with money. Yeah, are 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 good ones to solve. I mean, that's the whole point of venture capital. 
let's see what else. Cut scope. That's one um, that uh, I actually st- I steal from Nick. So uh, uh, I'll give you an example. One time I was rushing. Uh, actually, right before um, right before my wedding, I was trying to do like four different things, get it all done right before the welcome party. And uh, you know, I'm run- rushing into the office. I was like, going to take one or two calls. Um, and I was like, oh, and then I went into the lab real quick to drill a bunch of holes into into soup cans for uh, you know trailing the cans along behind the car. And he was like, Brew, you got to cut scope. You're not going to make it. And I was like, shit, you're right. Something's got to go. And so it's it's very difficult to cut scope because um, in engineering projects, because uh, the engineer is always uh, emotionally connected to what they're building. And so it's very hard to, to do and to do intelligently. Um, and so, you know, I it's a weakness we all have. And so, um, you know, cut scope. Another one I'll also steal from Nick is... Um, did, did you have a trick? I mean, it sounds like in that moment, you you gave up on the soup cans, right? So I didn't. And it's a great example of why I should have because they got all tangled. You know, I didn't get to put a wrapper on them. So it was like literally like aluminum cans behind the car. So I should have cut scope. I was told to cut scope. And I let my, uh, my enthusiasm for delivering something uh, get the best of me. So great example of what not to do. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I guess it, it's so human yeah. though, right? Like, like we yes. all just, you know, we, we see it, we're like, oh, I probably should. And then we don't, right? Like, right, like, right. You, I mean, you, you must talk to engineers all the time where this is happening. Do you have any like rules of thumb for how to, I mean, the way I do it um, for a few ways is I remove liability. Um, so, hey, you're responsible for XYZ. You're going to cut scope. Um, that means that there's going to be some downstream impact. Let's let, the sh- let's let the company shoulder that risk instead of you as a human being. You can shoulder the risk for plenty of things, uh, you know, as the responsible engineer for a piece of hardware or software, um, you know, the, you rise and fall and you have the pain and success, uh, pain and glory associated with how your deliverables do. But if you can remove a portion of that from the burden, the shoulder burden in exchange for that scope cut, it's a good way to uh, let the engineer feel like they're not failing and make sure and make sure that they know they're not right. Like this is just part of the game. Um, you got to cut scope. Another one is um, uh, a phrase you're here, here at Vart is, is maniacal simplicity. Always cutting, um, even when you don't need to cut scope, like in the design, like how can you make this simpler? Do you need this at all? You know, um, the only requirement is go to space, manufacture the thing and come home safe. Uh, and anything above that should be questioned. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love that. And it sounds like having it as a core value lets people say, you know, I, I have this emotional attachment to this feature, but on the flip side, I also have this this deep sense of attachment to these values and, and this loyalty to what we stand for, and so totally know, it sort of balances a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, and and like and revel in it and like celebrate it. You know, it's like um, when a good when a good scope cut move is made, be like hell yeah, like that is that's great. Saying no is is super tough. I heard a, uh, a I don't know if this is true, but I, I heard a Steve Jobs quote somewhere that was like the only button that a microwave needs is plus thirty seconds. Mm, yeah, right. That's true. Yeah, it only yeah. needs one button. And yeah. so, um, and that is a great example of maniacal simplicity. Yeah, yeah. It also shows that we're we're both dudes who uh, may, maybe work a lot and don't cook a lot of different meals. But <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's funny. Anyway, great hanging out, Bree, and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Varda was founded two years ago, and since then has scaled to a team of more than fifty incredibly talented people who have come from places like SpaceX, Stripe. Amazon, Apple, NASA, and Lockheed Martin. In their first year of operation, they raised more than $50 million and are on track to deploy space factories making therapeutics to benefit millions, and one day, billions of people. If you'd like to learn more about working with Brewy and the team, reach out at varda.com careers. 
Special thanks to my team at 50 Years and all the founders working on the world's most important problems. I'm Peregrine Badger, and you've been listening to Speed.